I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And that same elementary school teacher called me up and said that he had read in like the Chicago Sun-Times or the Tribune, one of the major Chicago papers, that uh, Joanna Merlin, who was an actress and a casting director for Harold Prince, was going to be in Chicago during my, my Christmas break. And they were having this open call for the next Hal Prince, Steve Sondheim musical. And he was like, you should forget going to Puerto Rico and you should come and do this open call. And I was like, uh, a cattle call, really? And he said, you should. Hello, world, and welcome back to another episode of Thanks for Coming In. I'm your host, Jillian Clare. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a show where I speak to fellow actors about their journey in the industry, and I make them share a couple bad audition stories with me. If you're not already subscribed to the show, make sure to hit that subscribe button right now and leave us some love. Today on the show, we have a Tony Award-winning actress. She's also a director, a writer, an author, just about everything you can be. You may remember her from Women of the Movement, Madam Secretary, Fear the Walking Dead, Gotham. It is the incredible Tanya Pinkins. And welcome to the show, Tanya. Thank you, Jillian. So happy to be here talking with you. I'm so excited to have you. Tony Award-winning I mean, so fun. <laughs> I have so much to talk to you about. But um, before we get into all of the amazing things that you've done in your career, I have to ask you, what made you decide to be an actor? You know, I wish I could say that it was a decision. Um, I don't think I 
decided to be an actor until I was in my 40s. I think really? more than anything, I was trying to not be an actor. I was constantly quitting. But I did have a, an elementary school teacher who did acting on the side. And he took a lot of classes. And he would um, have us do uh, Broadway-type musicals. Um, and he'd rent all the costumes when I was in elementary school. So I got to do Anna in The King and I and Golda and Huddle oh, in fine. Fiddler on the Roof and Annie in The Miracle Worker. And so I would say that uh, it was him who got me my first agent and, and, and would take me to auditions. So that would be how I, I got to be an actor. But I quit and tried not to be one a lot. I feel like that's the story of every actor. We're always just like, oh man, sometimes, sometimes it really hits you hard and you're like, okay, I need to, I need to take a break and find something different. Yeah. So you, you said that, that that's how you got in. How did you find your way into the professional avenue of acting? Was it, did you go to college for it or was it all just kind of happenstance? No, it, it really was with this teacher. I mean, from the time I was about 12 or 13, he got me my first agent, which I'm trying to think who it was. Gosh, I see her face. <laughs> um, I can't remember, but she was a former Ford model in Chicago and oh, she wow. started her own agency. So I started doing commercials and print work and industrial films when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Wow. You've been in the business for a long time. I love it. For a long time. Your whole life. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Do you remember what, like, the the first big um, film or TV role that you got when you were an adult was? First big film or TV. Well, my first feature film was Beat Street. Beach. which was one of the first films that was made about hip, the hip hop world and the Bronx and the South Bronx, the dance, the graffiti. Um, so that was produced by Harry Belafonte and David Picker. And oh, Ray no Don big Chong deal. Was the star of that. Uh, so that was my first big feature. And then I'd say my first big television role was um, on As the World Turns as Heather Dalton, where I was working with um, Meg Ryan, Stephen Weber, Marissa Tomei, Julianne Moore. We were the, the kids on As the World Turns. Oh, my gosh. What a lineup. Now, now I think with my first film, though, my first tiny role was as a, a very small part in Damien Omen 2, which was filming in Lake Forest, Chicago. Omen 2 as in the scary little kid? Oh, no. <laughs> terrifying i love horror movies i do too they're like my guilty pleasure i love bad horror movies too like the ones that are just so off the wall strange i love watching them i think they're so fun have you seen my horror movie i don't think so i wrote produced and directed a horror film called red pill it's on amazon well, I'm watching and today. uh yeah tell me <laughs> tell me about is in it Colby Menifee is in it. Um, Catherine Curtin, Catherine Irby. Yeah, I have a horror film. 
Okay, so you wrote and directed and produced. I mean, was that your first time and doing acted all in. that? Uh, I did all the jobs because I didn't have a lot of money and I didn't have a lot of time. And uh, I did all the jobs. Like at the end, when you see the credits, <laughs> you'll see my name and my child's name, you know, 10 or 12 times. <laughs> I love that. But you know what? Sometimes that's what you got to do to make the film that you want to make. To make a film at all. Yes. <laughs> to make a film that's what you got to do. Um, I'd love to talk to you about your early Broadway experience and how you got yourself into that world, because that's a difficult, difficult feat to even make it to Broadway, let alone win a Tony Award. Well, you know, my road there is, um, wasn't, you know, it's such an unusual thing that happened. I was in my freshman year at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, and uh, I was planning to spend my uh, Christmas break in Puerto Rico. Mm. And that same elementary school teacher called me up and said that he had read in like the Chicago Sun-Times or the Tribune, one of the major Chicago papers, that uh, Joanna Merlin, who was an actress and a casting director for Harold Prince, was going to be in Chicago during my, my Christmas break. And they were having this open call for the next Hal Prince, Steve Sondheim musical. And he was like, you should forget going to Puerto Rico and you should come and do this open call. And I was like, uh, a cattle call, really? And he said, you should. And I did. And um, I went to, and saw Joanna and read for her. And I remember at the end of the day of auditioning, she said, I'd like to take you to New York to audition for Hal and Steve. And so during that same break, uh, they flew me to New York and put me up. And I auditioned for Hal and Steve uh, with a lot of other people, Giancarlo Esposito and, um, yeah, Lonnie Price. Um, wow. James Alexander. And we all auditioned. And at the end of the day, they said, you know, congratulations. We would like you to be in the show. Um, we won't start work until uh, next fall, but you are hired. Oh, my gosh. Right there in the room. Right there in the room. That's remarkable. I mean, that There's rarely an audition happens. For you right there. <laughs> There's one right there. I mean, that rarely happens. And for it to happen with a Broadway show, too. I mean, I feel like I feel like Broadway shows, it's like 20 different callbacks of try this, do this and figure this out. And here's the dance. Here's the singing. I mean, it's usually so long, like such a big process. You know, I think there was something I um, figured out very early in my career. Remember, I've been doing this for almost 50 years. Uh, that, you know, I remember when I first came to New York and people would have me audition for like 20 minutes. They would have me sing all kinds of songs, just sing all the things I was capable of doing, even though they were only going to have me do this very small, limited thing. Mm. And I think after a while of doing all that prepping, I just finally uh, found like, these are some songs I do well. These are some things I do well. And I that became what I did. No matter what they were asking for, I would go in and show you what I do well. 
rather than trying to go in and show you that I can do what you want to do. Um, my focus began on, I want to be able to do the things that I can do well. And so that's what I'm going to show you. Mm. That brings me to, I've been asking actors this recently because I find it fascinating. I want to know when you get a, a script for an audition or a callback or, or whatever it is, how do you break it down? Do you have your own method? Do you pull from multiple methods? I would say I pull from multiple methods. Um, one thing is that sometimes I just read a script and it speaks to me like the emotion is there as I'm reading it. Mm. And that's a real great gift. Uh, when the, the material, you just respond to it instinctually. Um, I studied many methods with many teachers, <laughs> but the Meisner method of figuring out what do I want, what's in my way, what are the different tactics I'm going to use to try to get it, that is something I do. Um, I always look for what is uh, happening at the beginning of the script and what is, or the scene rather, and what is happening at the end. A number of my casting director friends have said that they want to see a change. Like every scene should have a change. If it started off happy, it's got to end sad or vice versa, but that they're looking to see an arc. They're looking to see how a character evolves or what changes in the action. And then I worked with a man named Tim Phillips who has a wonderful book called Audition for Your Career, mm. Not the Job. And I think that that really reflects the fact that I decided early in my career that I'm going to audition with what I do well. And if you're not looking for the thing that I do well, this is probably not the right job for me. Uh, Tim Phillips has a method he calls Sherlock Holmesing the text. And, and some of the brilliance of that is he talks about, you know, the, the detail that film and television writers take with making sure every word on the page is exactly what they mean. So particularly with television and film, he has you go word by word and tell you what is that word telling you? Uh, specifically names. What is the meaning of the name? You know, what is the origin of a name? Because that's telling you something about the character uh, that a lot of television people use names to keep certain qualities in their mind. So mm. you take the time to look at the etymology of a name, you may find that some hints into the character. Um, so those are some of the, the techniques that I use when I'm working on material. I mean, those all sound fantastic. I'm a Meisner girl myself and I, I just love, I love the way he breaks things down and I love I love that you can go into any Meisner class anywhere in the world and you're going to be able to find people who you connect with and that you can immediately say, hey, you want to do some repetition? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, it's just it's so nice to have that um, that sort of community around around acting. It is. Now, since I'm an old Meisner person, like I said, I've been doing it. I first started studying in the method when I was 15 years old. Um, so I've also taught it. I've taught it at universities. And one of the sort of uh, things I've had to watch in how some people teach the, the Meisner method is a lot of eye fucking. I don't mm. know if I can say that word, but you can people say like, do this. <laughs> they act like this and <laughs> they forget that it's about responding and you don't have to see to respond. You can respond from a sound. Um, 
what I love about it is I always say to people that if my other partners are good, they're going to give me my performance. I'm just going to, you know, have done all my prep work. I show up and I put my attention on you and I just respond authentically. And that's going to give me a performance. It's, it's so true. I mean, if the other people are prepared and ready and good, then you're going to be good too. Because I mean, that is everything. My, my acting teacher, when I was a small child, started teaching me Meisner. I had no idea that it was Meisner until I got into a Meisner class as a teen. And I was like, wait a second, this is all very familiar. Um, but she always used to say acting is reacting. And if you're not just listening and figuring out what that person is going through and feeling, then you're not doing your job as an actor. Agreed. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And back to the show. So you've been on several amazing TV shows over the years. Several. I mean, you have Fear the Walking Dead, Madam Secretary, Gotham, um, as just a few of them. <laughs> I want to know... Uh, what what role to you in in the TV world really spoke to you and and was the most fulfilling as an artist? Well, I've had a lot of them. So um, I think I started working with Tim Phillips in about the fall of 2016, and he has some amazing Meisner-based technique for film. Mm. And so uh, I had been cast in Gotham as Ethel Peabody, and I didn't have very much to do but using uh, some of Tim's tools about how to be very full when you're on stage and have no li- on screen and have no lines. Uh, I think that that technique uh, combined with uh, B.D. Wong, uh, who played Dr. Strange. Love uh, B.D. Wong. Yeah, love B.D. Um, B.D. and I you know, decided we were going to create a relationship on camera that the writers hadn't written Mm. we were going to create it and we were going to create it out of just how we reacted to each other because there weren't really lines and so um, I had been brought in to do four episodes and I ended up doing I think 12. So that one is a I, I feel very good about that one because that was where I truly saw my efforts um you know, reap me a reward of getting more opportunities. And it really was sometimes the camera people would be like, man, whatever was going on in your mind, I couldn't take my, my eyes off of you. Yes. Captivating the cameraman is always like the best feeling. Cause you're like, Oh, did I, did I stump you? And then that can be troublesome because <laughs> I think from having that Meisner um, training, I'm always interesting. Hmm. And I have had directors say, would you stop whatever you're doing? And, I, and I, I'm just listening. Yeah. You know, it, it can be very upsetting. I, I actually had a wonderful director. She said to me, she said, you are so interesting on camera. You just need to be a star. But this is not, you're, you're not the star of this movie. And she said, I can't, I can't have you on camera with my leads because I only want to watch you. Mm. Wow. I mean... That's, I feel like that's a credit to how well you're prepared, though. I mean, sucks, but, (laughs) but I mean, that's such a compliment. And clearly now we need to make you a star. Okay, I'm ready. I've been waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the show Women of the Movement that you were on. Um, It came out. Was it earlier this year or last year at this point? Um, January this year. January this year. You know, there's so many different Hollywood cliques, uh, and I'm not in any of them. Um, and an actress fell out of a show. It was actually Niecy Nash was supposed to do that role, and they lost her. And they were going to start shooting on, um, I think, Monday, something like about January 6th. It was, you know, uh, and... Um, of this, yeah. 
Oh my God. Twenty-one. That was the day uh, I flew. I remember, and um, they needed to hire someone quick. And I think uh, for many of the reputations I have, I have a reputation for being really good and really fast and uh, able to handle text and emotion. And so I think I auditioned on like January 30, no, December 30th and got that job on December 31st and, you know, knew I had to fly a few days later. Wow. Probably emotionally the most difficult piece I've ever done. We spent three months down in Mississippi. Um, a place I said I was never, ever going to even visit, but I was down there. My family's from Mississippi. I found some relatives hmm. and I, um, yeah, I lived in Mississippi for three, three years. And it taught me a lot about what is America and the fact that for me living in major cities like Chicago, New York, uh, Los Angeles, that is not the majority of America. People don't live the way I live. Mm. Which is an important thing to know as an actor. <laughs> um, I mean, that show was, it was so heavy to watch. And I'm wondering how, how it was on set. I mean, were you able to keep your spirits up together in between takes or did it feel as heavy as, as it did for viewers? Oh, it was heavy. Um, they certainly, they had psychologists there for certain days, you know, available for people. But uh, when we had to play the scenes, you had to, you had to stay in that. You just had to stay in that. And it's, you know, quite frankly, I can't imagine anything worse than, you know, having your child die. Um, you know, parents don't want to ever live beyond their children. And it was my grandchild who, in many ways, I had raised because Mamie was a young mother. So uh, it was the worst possible thing that I could imagine uh, having to do. Because even once, well, I have to save that for my audition story. <laughs> Last question about this, because I think it was such an important show. Um, I want to know, and I want younger actors to be able to, to listen to this too. I want to know how you were able to not take it home. Or did you take it home? Say that again? I just was, I was wondering if you were able to leave the heaviness on set and not take it home with you, or if it, if it still burdened you, you know, when you were away from every, everyone else. Just auditioning for that part. I carried that heaviness for the whole day. Mm. And I thought, you know, when I first became an actress, I always was looking for the really emotional roles. And after auditioning for that, I was like, maybe I'm not an actor anymore. This doesn't feel good. Wow. I, I, I can't let this go. And so when they called me about the callback, I was both happy, but I was like, oh, oh. And, you know, for the original audition, I didn't even think I had a shot. I said yes to the audition because I was getting to audition with uh, Gina Prince-Blythewood, who is, you know, this brilliant writer, director, showrunner. And, you know, I wasn't even trying to get the part. I was like, oh, I get to be on a Zoom during the pandemic with Gina Prince-Blythewood? Of course. <laughs> so, of course, when they said callback, I was like, ugh. 
I need to like shoot my shot one time and be done with it. And one of my teachers, William Esper, God rest his soul, he used to say that a, a good technique for any kind of audition was to always have something planned for yourself after the audition. Because he said the energy of looking forward to something after will carry. I don't know if you've ever watched those tapes of people walking into the room, but they often say that people get the audition by how they walk into the room. Like you walk into the room, like you're going to get something. So he said, having something prepared for when you, um, after the audition, you know, has this little twinkly mystery and people are like, well, you know, what, what is that little secret they have? So that is a technique that I've often used um, with auditions. For this one, I was like, they're going to get one shot. I'm going to let myself go all the way there. So I remember, you know, I got my lighting all set up. I put my X's on the computer monitor for the different characters. Um, I really prepped it and prepared it. And it was like, we're going to, we're going to just go there and then we're going to be done mm. because, and then I have something fun to do. And so, you know, they asked me if I was ready. I said, yes, I shot my wad and the showrunner goes, Oh, can we do it again? I forgot to tell my family not to walk through the room. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, sure. But I shot my wad and we did it again. And uh, thank God it was all videoed, you know, the Zoom video. Yeah. So well, they had both takes. Wow. And then you booked it. <laughs> well, I was that your, I was going to ask you to share an audition story, but is I've that shared the two story? Now. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you have. Um, so you're working on a new play right now. Is that right? Just finished uh, doing A Raisin in the Sun, which is a classic play from 1959. It was on Broadway. But we did um, an, a different version of it than, than had been done in New York. Uh, we did the entire play that Lorraine Hansberry wrote, um, mm. which included another character, a neighbor. Really? I didn't know there was an alternate version. <laughs> Um, and then before we go here, I do want to talk to you about um, Red Pill. I know we talked about it a little bit before, but I want to know what it was like for you to handle all those roles and also if you're going to do it again. Jillian, it was like, this is what I was born to do. Yes. If I, I mean, like, I wish I had become a millionaire early so that I could have just made movies over and over again. I... Loved it so much. I never worked so hard in my life for so many years, and it was so worth it because it was mine. Mm -hmm. You know, we as actors are really other people's tools. You know, we come in and we gift them with our, our skills and help them bring their vision to life. And then we walk away and they have this castle that we've built for them. This was the first, one of the first times that I got to build my own castle and it was thrilling. And, you know, I currently have options on like three other projects and yes, I want to do it again and again and again and again and again because I loved it. Oh, I love that. Yes. We love to see it. We need more women behind the camera. I love this. And I was going to ask you what's next. So what's, what's next? You got these options. 
Right. Well, I'm, you know, shopping a series that I adapted from a bunch of angels and demons novels. So trying to find somebody to take that on. Uh, I have two film scripts. Um, One I'm doing a rewrite of and looking to raise money for those myself. Uh, One of the things I learned uh, making my own film is that a film is a piece of real estate. And it makes money for whoever owns it for as long as storytelling is out there and people are looking to have a story. So if you can be fortunate enough to maintain ownership of the film and only license it to other people for their use, then that is something that you and your um, descendants can continue to capitalize on forever. So uh, learning to raise money um, which is a very different journey, and I don't know how, haven't done it yet, uh, but it's very different than just signing with a studio where they hire you like an actor, yeah. and they make the movie, and you're hired to do this, and then they can fire you, or they're done with you, but they own it forever. Mm-hmm. So um, really trying to learn that new skill. Wow. Well, you got a lot on your plate, and we love to see it. We love to see a, a working woman busy. Um how can, do you have social media so people can follow you and, and see all of your stuff? Yes. At Tanya Pinkins for um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Also Red Pill has a game. Ooh. So if you go to the Red Pill movie website, there's a narrative game to see if you can survive a world of Red Pills. And I also did a book called uh, Red Pill Unmasked, which is available on audio, Audible. And it's also available as an ebook on the website, which really gives you the details into the making of the film from idea all the way through, you know, promotion and getting it out into the world. Wow. Actor, writer, director, author, professor. I mean, what, what don't you do? Do you sleep? Um, I am fortunate to be one of those people who do not need a lot of sleep. So I probably sleep four or five hours a day um, if I need a nap. Like I just woke up from a nap before we were talking. I take a nap, but I I am very comfortable doing more than one thing at a time. Like I'll be watching TV and reading a book or doing something else. And I always have multiple projects in my mind at the same time. I remember I was talking to this um, guy who built, uh, his company's called like Liminal something, but he built a whole system for people to do plays on Zoom during the, um, the, the pandemic. And Andy Carlucci is his name. And I asked him, like, he's so smart in his brain. And I'm like, Andy, tell me what it's like inside your head. And I thought in many ways, I'm not as, you know, wow, brilliant as he is. But he described that it was like he was standing in the middle of a a, a round table around him or a series of tables. And on every table was a puzzle. And he would, you know, go up to one table and do as much of that puzzle as he could. And if he couldn't finish it, he'd move to the next table and, you know, solve as much of that. And then when he solved that puzzle, that table would go away and a new one would come up. And that's kind of how I think my mind works. There's always a whole lot of um, puzzles and ideas and projects that I'm working on. And I give a little attention to um, many of them every day. And then I have my downtime, which isn't really downtime because I love to binge watch uh, a series 
on TV, but that's like, that's like steady for me. Exactly. Like I'm learning how people are doing things. What's, what's, you know, cause storytelling is changing all the time. And with the streamers and the fact that you can binge, the fact that now you have stories that move in and out of time. So like you could be moving 50, 60 years last night, 30 years ago, last week, yeah. you know, so there's a whole new kind of storytelling going on. That's amazing. Well, I can't wait to see all of the um, puzzle pieces put together on all of your new projects so that we can all enjoy them. And it was so lovely talking to you. Um, I hope to have you back when one of those puzzles is out in the world. Sounds good. I like it. I'll, I'll be back for my next film. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jillian. You have a great day. Thanks again to Tanya for coming on the show and spending some time with me. Make sure to check out her film, Red Pill, wherever you get your films. Tune in next week for another fantastic episode with a very special Christmas guest. And as always, thanks for coming in. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.